I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. I want to go home, but no one's listening. They're talking about Will walking home, hiding his books in a pizza box. I was dumbfounded, to be honest. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. The Canada Reads theme for 2024 is one book to carry us forward. Books can act as guides, they can put a spring in our step, and some steel in our spine as we move into the future, even an uncertain one. And if there's a book out there that can show us how to greet that future with an open heart and resilience, sign me up. Every year we talk with the authors of the shortlisted books, and this year we add the panelists to that conversation. In a couple of minutes, Carly Fortune, the author of Meet Me at the Lake, will be here along with fashion creative Myrian Enjo who is championing Carly's book in the March Canada Reads debates. And in a half hour, Matthew R. Morris will be here with his book, Black Boys Like Me. Matthew talks with our contributor Ryan B. Patrick about how sports, hip-hop, and his school years shaped his masculinity. And to close today, I'll talk with Jenna Lee Austria Bonifacio about how she drew on her years of working with Filipino newcomers to tell stories of family reunification in her debut novel, Reuniting with Strangers. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. It might be winter outside, but with Carly Fortune's novel, Meet Me at the Lake, readers can dive into summer all year round. Meet Me at the Lake is a charming romance where a first encounter a magical day spent together in Toronto, doesn't live up to its initial promise. And then 10 years later, the star-crossed couple gets a chance to finish what they started. And, well, things get complicated. Hardcore Next Chapter fans will remember that we had Carly on the show this summer, and they'll also remember our second guest, designer and fashion influencer Myrian Enjo. The two are joining forces for a very exciting reason. Myrian is championing Meet Me at the Lake on this year's Canada Reads debate. Carly Fortune, the author of Meet Me at the Lake, and Myrian Enjo are meeting for the first time, not at the lake, but here in the Toronto <laughs> studio. Hello and welcome to the next chapter. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having us. Yes. First question has to be, Carly, uh, how did you react when you heard that Myrian had picked your book for Canada Reads? I was dumbfounded, to oh, be wow. honest. Um, both, I just so humbled I honestly haven't got my head around it yet. It has been such an amazing year. And I was thinking, surely nothing else wonderful will happen this year. And then I had this news and I... I just honestly, it never struck me as a possibility that one of my books would have been chosen. And so I'm just tremendously humbled and so excited. The uh, the CBC books team has a white horse waiting for you downstairs and you gallop off and then you really feel it. That's when it really feels that it's, it's happening. There's a I'm holding outside. you to that. Myrin, yeah. uh, you love romance books. Mm-hmm. What about Meet Me at the Lake stood out to you? Yeah. So during my selection process, I knew that I wanted to 
um, kind of dive into that genre. But when I was exploring different titles, what really stood out for me about Meet Me at the Lake is how the book gave so much to the reader. I read the book and I felt like the book was like a salted chocolate tort with (laughs) chili inside because um, and readers of the book will kind of get that reference. But for those who may not at this point, basically what that means is I came into the book thinking it was maybe a salted caramel chocolate tort and that it would be sweet and that there would be sugar crusted on top. But instead, it had chilies inside and the salt flecks on top. And what that basically means is that it gave me so much more than I thought I was going to get. I got like it challenged me. It expanded my literary palette, if you will. I went back and forth with the characters. Do I like you? Do I not like you? What's going on? Like it I was it was almost interactive in that sense. <laughs> and I really liked that. And you're also doing a, a Canada Reads first, right? You wanted to be the first person to champion a uh, a romance book on Canada Reads. Mm-hmm. Why was it important to bring this genre to the uh, into the spotlight? Yeah, and I was so excited to do it. I, I really am so honored to get that um, that possibility and that opportunity. And what I loved about it was the opportunity to introduce some a genre that maybe people don't look at as much when they think about, you know, something that is such an honor and is such a platform like Canada Reads. And sometimes I feel like people's initial thoughts may be to only reserve certain types of maybe more highbrow literature, like, oh, it needs to be the autobiography of a dignitary. And I wanted to say, well, actually, reading can be a lot of fun. Reading for the everyday person doesn't have to be, you know, educational or aspirational. Sometimes it can be entertaining and sometimes it can just be, it can actually teach us about ourselves and about people around us through reading these stories of people like us. Mm. Carly, let me ask you about that, too. How does that feel as a writer to have a romance book on Canada Reads? Oh, I think it's wonderful. I think romance, well, first of all, it's one of the, it is the most read type of book. Um, And romance is about people. It's about relationships. It's about learning to love ourselves and love others. It's about the challenges we have with our emotions and with our friendships. And I think they are well, romance is a good romance is a, uh, it's about how we live and how um, we empathize with others. It's really important to me in my books to have this you know there is a love story always, but it's also about um, how we kind of survive as humans. So Meet Me at the Lake is a story about picking ourselves up after grief. It's a story about a mother and daughter relationship. It's a story of a female friendship that spans decades. And it also it tackles stuff like mental health and that's all done under under this romantic uh, story story. So you know that there's going to be a happy ending, but you're being taken on a very emotional journey. But ultimately, you, you as the reader know that you're going to end up smiling, that you're safe. Sure, I remember as a child being in a in a friend's house, and his mother had 
these Harlequin romances. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what kind of sexual deviant is this mom, <laughs> you know, or my buddy's mother? And, you know, I was I, 10 and yeah. I had no clue about anything other than, you know, shirtless man on the cover. Uh, and over time, you realize, you know, these are books that deal with these themes like grief and parenthood, mental health in, in this case. So how do you strike that balance in, in your writing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think about that too hard, to be honest. I think that kind of comes naturally to me. I'm I'm interested. I think one of, the, you know, I was formerly a journalist. I worked um, in journalism for 16 years as an editor. And I think um, the I, I used to see my careers like as an author, my career as an author, my career as a journalist is completely separate. And the, the more time passes, I see how they've overlapped. And the stories that and issues I like to assign as an editor, um, so whether that's the struggles we have as new parents, um, whether that's mental health stories, whether that's um, stories about, about friendship, the issues that I cared about as an editor more and more, I see how they are reflected in my work as an author. And I think for me, that is kind of natural. And sometimes, you know, I my books always start with the setting. The setting comes first to me. Um, with Meet Me at the Lake, the mother-daughter story came next. And then um, the romance was kind of um, the, the, the last thing that I thought of. And it's, you know, the central story in the book, but it's not necessarily where I start in terms of idea generation. Okay. Like a good relationship. Romance shouldn't come first if you want it to last, is my theory. Oh. Relationship oh. advice. We're you're, getting... you're a friends to lovers fellow. He's friends a, to lovers. I'm a friends, a to, friends lovers to lovers fellow. trope. I, <laughs> I just think, you know, when two people see each other from a crowded room and then it's like, it must be destiny. I'd rather have the story where it builds and they hate each other even first. Oh. And then becomes enemies to lovers, lovers trope. <laughs> I'm learning so much about tropes. This is what I mean. (laughs) Uh, But this is also speaking to the richness of these novels, that there's so many different, uh, you know, ways in. Uh, So let's dive into the the writing and the setting. When the story begins, your character Fern meets Will for the first time. And Fern is finishing up university, doesn't want to move back home to her uh, her family home in Muskoka. Mm-hmm. What made you pick that time of, uh, of transition for their first account encounter? You know, initially when I wrote the book, they were uh, the I threw out half of the book when I wrote my second draft. In the first draft, they were teenagers, and the whole book was was set uh, at the lake at the resort. And uh, but what I wanted to tell a story about how life puts us on paths we didn't expect and how we cope with that. Um, and reflecting on what I wanted the book to be, it made the most sense to have Will and Fern be in that stage of life as young people where you're just about to launch into the world and you don't know what your adult life is going to look like, but you have all these ideas. You know, I'm Will, he's never going to take an office job and he's going to be an artist and Fern is struggling because she's supposed to move back home to work at her family's resorts, but she doesn't really want to do that and she also doesn't know how to tell her mother that and it's such a heightened time of life and yeah I'd forgot how hard it is to be on that cusp of what you think is like adulthood you feel like you have your school life and then you're going to be an adult and of course we I didn't realize that there's so many phases we go through Um, but it's a really kind of exciting, but also a time of a lot of pressure, I think. So when Fern and Will meet again, it is 10 years later, and their lives have both taken, as you say, unexpected turns. Yes. 
they're both not doing what they hoped they would do yeah. 10 years later. Fern is back home running the resort reluctantly, and Will didn't pursue his passion for art. How can people make the transition from unfulfilled expectation to finding new dreams? Or can they always? Is that a fair thing to ask? <sighs> I think we all do. I think we all have excellent th- things that we thought we would do that we don't do. I think we change as we get older. Um, and sometimes that process is natural and easy. And other times it takes a lot of introspection or therapy or medication hmm. <laughs> to kind of cope with our who we are as humans and what the possibilities were. And I think that's you know, you I'm turning 40 um, in February. And I think that's like a time when you're you're hitting, hitting your 40s. You're like, oh, I've built this life. Is this the life that I want? Well, and it's a time where you kind of like look back and take stock. Um, and I, I, I think that's really important to take stock. And certainly when I started seeing a therapist, it was because I had got to a job that I thought I loved. I thought it was my dream job. I thought it was going to be everything I worked for as a journalist. And I was deeply unhappy. And um, that's actually what led me to, to writing fiction. I wanted to do something for myself. I wanted to do something that made me happy. And so I, I don't think there's one answer. I don't think there's a one size fits all solution. But I do think it pays to slow down for a minute and kind of assess where you are. I always wanted to write a book. I never thought I would. I never thought I would do it until I just decided that I would. And so sometimes those dreams just take acknowledgement and then some space to make it happen. Very nice. Um, Marianne, let me ask you about this. The book, mm-hmm. it, it flips from time periods, as, as we've been suggesting, mm-hmm. back and forth from present day to, to the past. We alternate between a younger Fern to Fern in her 30s, who is now running her parents' resort in Muskoka after her mother dies. Mm-hmm. With that one day 10 years ago in Toronto when she met Will, so what did that style of narration uh, do for you, for your, for your reading experience? I liked it a lot. You know, what I loved about their day and, and the way that you wrote it, it was just so nostalgically Toronto for me like their experiences I mean you could literally do Will's (laughs) tour of Toronto today and you could you might want to explore that that could be fun make a little meet me at the lake experience but like what I loved about kind of reading that day that they shared together was that it was it connected with me everything they did I thought about you know the time that I spent at the AGO or when I went to Graffiti Alley or when I went to Sneaky D's because those are all things that I did when I first moved to Toronto and those are such hallmark Torontonian experiences and and being an outsider too, you know, Fern gets to experience them and to see how she is. It just, it was like our worlds were kind of melding and it felt really personal to me and I think I just loved feeling like a third party to their experience. Myrene, your eyes lit up when you talked about this tour of Toronto. I want to ask you, if you were going to give a tour of Toronto today, what would be on that tour of yours? Ooh. You know, I got to go to Yorkville. <laughs> I, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm cultivating it in my mind, but I'll tell you the one thing we're definitely going to do, we're going to go to Summers 
um, in Yorkville, and we're going to get some ice cream. That's We're going to get some key lime ice cream. That's what we're definitely going to do. <laughs> I thought we were going to Yorkville for fashion. It's a fashion influence. Oh, we're dear. going for ice cream. Even I'm a better. foodie. I'm, yeah, see, foodie I've, I've taken my, my, my career hat off, and I'm giving you guys pure, real Myrene, and she wants to eat snacks. <laughs> that's great. Um, Myrene, Canada Reads this year is, is looking for one book to carry us forward. That's, that's going to be the theme. Mm-hmm. When making the case for Meet Me at the Lake, without getting into too much detail, because mm-hmm. you'll have plenty of time to do that, yeah. what, are the, what, what are some of the things you'll bring up? When we're looking for how to carry us forward, I think nobody knows the future, and I think that, that holds a lot of uncertainty. And so while we can't predict that and how we're going to move forward, the best way to be prepared for the future is to reorient ourselves in our past and in who we are presently. And I think that if we're looking for roadmaps on how to do that, this book is a beautiful way to show us who we are, who we want to be, you know, where we come from, how we can join and meld all those things together so that when we do go forward into the future, we can confidently do that with certainty that the decisions we make and the paths we choose will serve us and will be rooted in you know our identities. And when we look at the characters and we look at their journeys, you know specifically um, our main characters, Fern and Will, but honestly, even some of the more supporting characters, the voices of Maggie and Peter, we see that everybody's life went different ways than they maybe would have planned initially. If you would have asked them, you know, what are your goals? What do you see your future? Perhaps their reality didn't necessarily turn out exactly that way. But when we see what, how they worked with what they had and how they rose to the occasion, how they displayed resilience and how they displayed tenacity and how a lot of times they display selflessness and sacrifice and responsibility, but still not forgetting what you love and your passions, making room for those things. They display all the characteristics that we need within ourselves to help guide us to move forward. So if you you know, are seeking how do we move forward, you'll find that the answers are within yourselves, just like these characters find that all along the answers that they need were within themselves. So, Carly, that's a fairly comprehensive answer there. But yeah, I wonder beautiful. if you have uh, you have anything to add as Myrian defends your book. Anything you would um, like her to mention? Oh well, no, I'm not going to tell her what to do. <laughs> but I'm and I'm so grateful, and she does a beautiful job. I don't think she needs my advice. I mean, my my intention with the books are to give people an escape and to kind of, but kind of you know, trick them into um, maybe expanding their point of view on certain subjects. There's, you know, kind of sneak some vegetables into mm-hmm. into the book. Um, but ultimately, I think that, you know, it's, it's a really difficult time to be a human person in this world. And I hope that the book transports you somewhere beautiful. I hope you feel like you're snooping on a real relationship. I hope, like, you can learn something about yourself. And um, ultimately, I really want my books to be a plea for empathy um, and 
I think it's something that's really lacking. Empathy and forgiveness are two things that are really lacking in people today. And I think they're qualities that are so important in successful relationships. Um, and and so I think all of my books are a bit of a, a bit of a plea for empathy. Mm. Well, good luck to both of you on the road that lies uh, very, very closely ahead. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks for having me. Carly Fortune is the author of Meet Me at the Lake. Marian Enjo is a fashion influencer, designer, and model. She is championing Meet Me at the Lake at the 2024 Canada Reads Debates, which will air March 4th to the 7th. Mason Abbey. I'm from Sandy Lake First Nation. I'm currently living in Toronto. I'm a singer-songwriter signed to uh, Ishkade Records, one of the first uh, Indigenous and female-owned uh, labels in the country. Right now I'm reading Killing the Shaman by James Stevens and Chief Thomas Fiddler. Killing the Shaman talks about the leaders of Sandy Lake First Nation from the first to uh, the last chief who would have been written about back in, in, in 1980. So there's been some, some new chiefs since then. But it's kind of the history of Sandy Lake First Nation, which is important to me. You know, I, I the whole reason I kind of made, made this album based on my grandfather's stories was was to kind of record the stories of, of my family. So we, you know, we know where we came from and we know where we're going. You know, many Indigenous people don't have recorded history and you know there's there's a whole different thing when it comes to identity to worry about because like there isn't like a ton of stuff recorded in museums there isn't statues there isn't all these things that a lot of other cultures have that you know solidify you know where they came from so to find this book and to start reading it it's, it's an extraordinary thing to, to to find and then to start digging into so it's written by Thomas Fiddler, um, who's of the Sucker Clan, and and I'm I'm of the Sucker Clan as well. So I'm actually you know uh, a bud relative to the author, and the author is writing about all the fiddlers as well. Like it's it's kind of crazy to find out that you know I'm related to the the first chief of our our tribe, and it's kind of crazy they they got their English name the Fiddlers like Fiddler because of 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 their love of of the fiddle. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting because, you know, no one in my family, aside from, you know, me and my brother actually kind of played music to, at least that's what I thought. And then, you know, to hear that over a century ago, there's still people in my family who, who loved music and were curious about it. And so, yeah, when the settlers came over and, you know, they brought their, their fiddles, my family had, had found interest in that. It was really hard to find this book, actually. I when I heard about it and I, I tried to find it, there were there were no copies. I'm living in Toronto now and I couldn't find any copies in the city. Um, and I couldn't figure out where to order it. So I had actually gone back up to Sandy Lake um last summer. And when I when I met the chief and was meeting some of the counselors, 
you know, I spent some time there. I was there for like 12 days, but like on the fourth day, like a counselor just had it in his desk and he said, yeah, if you want to know more about who we are and, and, you know, how, you know, where Sandy Lake came from, like here, here's this book and he opened up the desk and he handed me Killing the Shaman. That was OG Kree singer-songwriter Asa Nabi. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. How he grew into his sense of self as a black man is the story Matthew R. Morris tells in his essay collection, Black Boys Like Me. Matthew grew up in Toronto, the child of a Jamaican immigrant father and a white mother with a Polish background. He played sports, absorbed a lot of 90s pop culture, and was a good student. But those identity markers are only the broad strokes of who he is. His essays are clear-eyed examinations of the ways he and the world interacted to make him who he is today. Here is Ryan B. Patrick in conversation with Matthew R. Morris about Black Boys Like Me. Matthew, hey, what's going on? Ryan, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Uh, So the title of the book is Black Boys Like Me. It's an essay collection. Uh, So you grew up in Scarborough, Ontario. Who was a black boy like Matthew Morris? Ironically, there wasn't too many black boys around me other than, you know, my contemporary friends and things like that, right? So I it was more of uh, looking up to black men, right, mm-hmm. that we saw on TV through rap videos and rap songs or, you know, on TSN at the time watching sporting events, basketball and football. So it was the men that we looked up to and almost, you know, through some of these other situations like schooling, we were – we were almost forced to be black men before we could even, you know, go through our youthful mm. trials and tribulations per se and and just be black boys. So so the black boys like me that I looked up to was kind of in real time, just comparing myself to, you know, friends that lived in the same area of Scarborough mm. and, you know, seeing how they lived compared to how I lived, what they were interested in. Um so it was a contemporary comparison yeah. in real time. Mm-hmm. So the book, Matthew, is called Black Boys Like Me. It's like a mixtape of eight original and personal and engaging essays about race, identity, belonging. You mention in the book that you're not an expert in anything but your own experience. What do you mean by that? You know, I think when it comes to literature around blackness, that there is somewhat of a higher educational gate a white picket ivory tower gate that exists where people speak on on blackness and in particular black masculinity from a position of authority where they claim to have a full grasp and understand understanding of the black experience and um, I think that is uh, erroneous to say the least and I also think it's somewhat irresponsible because blackness um, exists in a continuum mm. and Outside of one's personal experience, I I think it's very hard to claim expertise in 
understanding what it means to exist as a as a black man. Yeah. Um, so for me, I'm merely speaking not from you know the inside looking out or from the outside even looking in. I'm taking my position in the dead center and just looking around. Yeah. So speaking of your experience, you're fiercely proud of your heritage and your family. You characterize your parents as being a white Canadian mother and a black immigrant father. Tell me about your parents. Yeah, so, uh, you know, both my parents came from, you know, hard scrabble beginnings. Um, my mother was a first generation Canadian. Her, her parents came over from Poland during uh, the war, World War One. And my father immigrated here uh, when he was 18 or 19 years old from Jamaica. He worked in a factory. My mother worked in, you know, a, a low blue-collar job. And the fact that my dad was black, my mother was white. For me, my mother's experience of raising two young black boys was something that I speak to in the book. And I think it's, it's somewhat of a through line in the book of where I, I, I try to arrive at at the end of this idea of race and racism and belonging in terms of not necessarily a remedy for what we can do as a culture, but how to perhaps look at race and belonging in a way that transcends, transcends identity. Yeah. So there's a wonderful part in the book, Matthew, where you talk about hip hop and how it played a formative role and how you identified in being black. And you tell this wonderful story about your white mother taking you to pick up uh, the uh, album, a hip-hop album. Yeah. What was that album? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this was like 1993, 1994. And, you know, in Canada at this time, we got things a little late compared to America. But, you know, Snoop Dogg was, um, I think he was actually called Snoop Doggy Snoop Doggy Dog, Dog back then. <laughs> um, but he was the biggest thing in the in the early 90s. He was the most iconic the, the biggest hip-hop artist, the biggest rapper. You know, obviously, I've, I had heard of him at that time. I was probably in, like, the third grade. And uh, my birthday was coming up. And my mom took me to the mall out in uh, Scarborough, Cedarbury Mall. And uh, there was a Sunrise Records in there. And as I was perusing the hip-hop shelves, I, I came upon this iconic cover art, which, to me, symbolized the comic nature of storytelling and in hip hop, this, this larger than life character. And, um, you know, I guess I was lucky that my mother never really heard the lyrics or understood most of the content. Um, so with a little bit of, uh, resistance, she ended up, uh, getting me that, getting me that, uh, tape. It was a tape back then. Yeah. <laughs> Could imagine that image of your white mother picking this record for your, well, you're nine years old at yeah, the time. Yeah, <laughs> nine years old, it walking up to the R-rated <laughs> hip hop. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that, that was it, right? And it was, uh, you know, I, I am fortunate that, you know, my mother never uh, was a gatekeeper in that sense yeah. in terms of allowing me to explore my own identity, whatever it was. Um, she would she would allow me to explore to a certain extent. Mm. So one of the essays in the book, Matthew, you you talk about going to high school in Scarborough, Ontario, and you actually loved reading and learning, but school was often a difficult time in terms of getting good grades and being a quote unquote model student. What what was your school high school experience like? Yeah, um, so so my high school experience was nuanced because on the one hand, I I 
led into this, you know, idea that, you know, because I was black and had somewhat of, you know, athletic tendency that I would pursue that avenue in, in, you know, in life into adulthood. And because, you know, my sport of significance was football, um, at the time, even till this day, you still needed to, you know, try to pursue a college entry to, mm. to play NCAA football or play football at the next level. So there was always that piece of understanding that I still had to do decent enough to get into college if I wanted to play football. But on the other hand, there's this, as I reflect back, this complicated identity politics that existed within me. And I know that it existed within within other black males where on the one hand, of course, you prioritize and want to succeed academically in school. But on the other hand, there's there's all these nuances and implicit subtle racism that occurs once you do succeed academically as a black male. It almost is Mm. as if you succeeding as a black male strips parts of your blackness away um, and that's, you know, largely because of, you know, public discourse of, of what academic success looks like in contrast to what blackness is supposed to be and yeah. supposed to look like. So this gets internalized from an early age where, you know, for me, I felt that if I was to succeed academically, for some reason, I had to hide it from my friends. Yeah. You know, and I, I mentioned at the, the chapter of that the title of that chapter is The Fresh Prince Syndrome, um, and it, it's because it reminds me of – I have this vivid image of an episode where Will is reminiscing with one of his old friends from back in Philadelphia, and they're talking about Will walking home hiding his books in a pizza box, right? And, and to me, that symbolizes the, the plight and the nuanced reality that black males sometimes experience in academic settings, whereas – they want to succeed academically, but there are so many roadblocks that are set up for them to not be able to or have to diminish or, or lower their, their inclinations academically. Yeah. So you're talking about the TV show um, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air starring yeah. Will Smith. So that was like came out in the 90s. It had a six-year run. Um, it, it, what did that show mean to you? Yeah, that show was – pivotal in our understanding again of what of what blackness is right it came out in a time where i remember rushing home after school and that would be the show Mm. that everyone would watch will smith's character uh, you know the fresh prince it symbolized this other just another pillar of blackness of black masculinity right the he was the guy at at his school in in this sitcom where he turned his blazer inside out, right, to signify his difference, right, to stand out. And, you know, when it comes to hip-hop music and some of the, you know, artists that existed in the 90s, whether it was a Tupac or a Jay-Z or a Biggie or a DMX Mm. or with sports figures like Deion Sanders or Charles Barkley or Michael Jordan, um, actors like Will Smith, and shows like The Fresh Prince really epitomized what that quintessential black male figure was was supposed to be. So so that show was just another staple in, mm. you know, my imagery of what blackness was supposed to look like. So let's talk about graduation. Um, you have your master's. Um, you went to school. You're an educator now. 
Uh, talk about that in the essay collection. You talk about um, becoming a middle school teacher and how education, your approach, you bring your whole self yeah. to it. Like you went to picture day and you kind of dressed up how you wanted to dress up. Maybe yeah. talk about that. What, what, how yeah. were you dressed for picture day? Yeah, so uh, a picture day was, you know, a, a balmy September <laughs> September day. You know, it was probably 30 degrees already at, you know, 8.30, 8.45 in the morning. So I wore a T-shirt and shorts, you know. <laughs> I thought it was appropriate enough for a picture as a mm-hmm. middle school teacher in the middle of the city, you know. And I had a situation that I wrote about um, in the chapter on clothing and aesthetics where my principal questioned me about the clothes that I was wearing. And for me, it implied a little bit of racism and racism in the questioning, because as I noticed later, there was a colleague who was pretty much wearing what I was wearing in the morning. He had cargo pants on, he was wearing sandals and a t-shirt, but he was an older white guy. So I, Reflecting on that situation where I was just dressed as I would normally dress, where I thought there was nothing wrong with the way I was dressed, Yeah. right, in terms of being an educator. So that situation to me in terms of clothing is just just one piece in the book where I highlight some of the the ways in which black males are surveilled and policed to a certain extent, right? And so for me, when it comes to, you know, my career in education, I I am intentional about the way that I show up in educational spaces because I think, not I think, I know that it is important for Mm -hmm. young black students, particularly young black males, to see representations of themselves that exist in ways that sort of embody the culture that they're familiar with and that that is endearing to them, but at the same time exist in a space that shows them that academic excellence is something to strive towards as well. They should be able to see men that they aspire to be like on whatever level, whether it's just an aesthetic level, that work in spaces like education. Mm From your perspective as an educator in 2024, yeah. how are you reaching black boys like you? My, my latest iteration of, of my career right now is taking me into um, pre-service teacher preparation, working at um, two universities right now in their faculty of education, preparing, helping foster new teachers to the place of hopefully entering the space of education and, and teaching students. So if I'm able to implement some of the ideals and philosophies and essential elements to what teaching and learning should look like to, you know, a new wave of, of teachers who are entering the profession, I think that um, I'll be able to reach black boys, black, black students in a way that will be beneficial to them. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it, Ryan. That was Matthew R. Morris, the author of Black Boys Like Me, in conversation with Ryan B. Patrick. And Matthew is a reader for the CBC Nonfiction Prize, which is open until March 1st. The winner will receive $6,000 from the Canada Council for the Arts, a two-week writing residency at the Banff Centre, and their work will be published on CBC Books. 
Reuniting with Strangers is a book full of stories you don't expect. This is generally Austria Bonifacio's debut novel about Filipino families reuniting, sometimes after years of separation. It all takes place over the course of one Canadian winter, and it starts with Monolith. He's the five-year-old boy who's just been taken from the Philippines to live with his mother in Oakville, Ontario. Instead of radiating happiness and joy at being reunited, Monolith lashes out and is unwilling or unable to speak. From here, generally takes us into the homes, hearts, and minds of Filipino families across the country, and back to the Philippines as well. Everyone we meet, whether a lonely teen, parent, or grandparent, has a story to tell about the pain, confusion, anger, as well as the joy and complicated love of reconnecting with families after years apart. Genelie Austria Bonifacio joins me today in Toronto, where she lives. Hi, Genelie. Hello, nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. So... Monolith is a big name, yes. which is why when he's born at 13 pounds, his mother Vera chooses that for him. Soon after that, she leaves Monolith with her sister in the Philippines and she goes abroad for work. When the day arrives that they reunite, Monolith is full of rage. He attacks Vera, destroys her apartment. Tell me about that. What makes him so angry? Well, let me tell you about why the book exists first, and mm-hmm. then I'll tell you about Monolith. So the book happened because I do something called Filipino Talks. I go around to different schools, and I teach teachers how to teach Filipinos better. And when you do that kind of work, it's really emotional, right? It's, very, it's a lot of hard labor on your heart. And I went to a school once when I was a settlement worker, and the teacher said, oh, it's so sad that you're here now because we needed you. Last month, uh, there was a little boy, and he was nonverbal. Just reunited with his mom, who is a caregiver, and he just kept hitting her. He was just getting very violent at nighttime, especially. So she would call people to come and straightjacket him to calm him down so he could go to bed. And for years, I thought about this. And why is he so mad? Is it because no one told him he was coming to Canada? Who took care of him? Did they prepare him for this? Does he miss that person? Was he abused back home? Why is he nonverbal? What, did he get the treatment he needed? There are a lot of reasons that you could be upset, right? Um, who is his mom? Does he even know who she is? Does he speak English? Is anyone speaking to him in Tagalog? Is this like a completely different planet for him? This is a lot to handle when you're just a little boy. Sure. So... I took that idea of all of the anger that is inside this little boy, and I thought, okay, this story is going to help me tell the stories of other people throughout the diaspora as well, and we're going to use monolith throughout their stories. Yeah, monolith, in fact, is is uh, the, sort of the connector, mm-hmm. right? There's nine stories in the book, but monolith appears in some in, you know, in what, some at some level or the other, mm-hmm. uh, in some depth or the other, in, in in every single story. Yeah, that was really important to me because. I like the fact that he is nonverbal because oftentimes my students tell me, like, this is so hard. Being in Canada, nobody asked me if I wanted to come here. Nobody told me that this would really be better for my future because sometimes I don't think it is. My parents do not um, communicate with me what I need them to do, right? And they're having a really hard time. And, like, they say things like, I hate my school. I hate my family. I hate this apartment. I hate this country. I want to go home. But no one's listening and I feel voiceless. So I thought, okay, if we can show how much power monolith can have, even as a nonverbal child, maybe it can also show my students the power that they have, even though when they feel like they're voiceless, but they really aren't. Mm. You know, I, I said in the introduction, this is a, a book of stories that we don't really expect. 
And part of the surprise comes with the way you present every story. So, for instance, one chapter is an instruction manual for a caregiver. Another one is a self-help guide that a daughter writes for her, her, her mother or, or gives to her mother. Then there's this custody battle that's over text and emails, much more in this, in this spirit. Why did you choose to, to tell, uh, not just tell stories, but also to show them as well? So I'm going to make this book as accessible as humanly possible. I thought, okay, there are a lot of ways to tell a story in a very accessible way. There's a series of resumes. There's a songbook in it. I thought, okay, if I want this to really reach the people who need to hear it the most, it has to be in forms that don't make them feel like they need a PhD. Like there's not going to be a lot of big words. There's not going to be a lot of long sentences. This is a very fast book to read and I engineered it that way. Mm. So that way I can go to the people who I think need to hear it. There's a one very, very powerful quote that stuck out to me in this book. At one point, a mother says to her husband, and this is after they've spent 10 years separated from each other, living and working in different countries. She says, a good parent is a good provider, and a good provider is one who leaves. How do you react to that? That is the quote that is tattooed on the hearts of Filipinos, not even just in Canada, but all over. Uh, For generations now in the Philippines, we've had something called labor export policy. So we export people. That is our biggest export. Can you imagine? Mm. It's not mangoes or rice, although we have amazing mangoes. it's people. And so when you think about quotes like that, you know, it's the fact that in so many Filipino families, if you stay behind in the Philippines to raise your child, people consider it to be selfish. One chapter in the book takes place entirely in the Philippines, and it's filled with uh, lyrics from traditional Filipino songs. And these songs are called Kundiman. Mm-hmm. Um, the main character of this very chapter that's set in the Philippines is famous for singing Kundiman until he had a stroke and he lost his voice. And he worries the music, he worries that the music is becoming a lost art. Is he right to worry about that? Yeah, for sure. I think that um, with Kundiman, it's um, such a really interesting way to tell a story. So I was taught that these, on the surface, are love songs, right? But they're actually love songs to a country. Um, So what's happening is it sounds just like your normal love song. You know, I want to be with you and let's, you know, let's let's spend our our eternity together. But really, it was a way for people to express their love of a country when we were under Spanish rule. And so a way to kind of get these dissident messages through, but in a very coded way. Mm. Yeah, and so me, I, I'm a pianist myself. I love playing Kundiman. I think they're great songs because they all start out very sad. And then the second part is super happy. And so I really like the juxtaposition of that because it's a lot of depth to a story. Yeah. Yeah. On this note of, you know, tradition and song and, and folklore, I want to ask you something because I, I think about this personally quite a bit. From your experience in the work that you've done with Filipino Canadians and, and this community, how much culture is lost in immigration? So much. Not even just immigration, but colonization, right? So colonization is like the whole colonial mentality that everything that we have is not as good as what somebody else brought to us. Mm. And then later you leave the country and then that just gets compounded, right? And so 
I mean, I'm not going to say that I don't love like the current Filipino pop songs because I do, but mm. I just feel like sometimes with the newer generations, it's we're losing a lot of of this history. But luckily, nowadays, so much social media is really picking this up, and the best time right now, I think, is to be Filipino is right now because there's so many ways to find out about your culture online. You don't have to be in the Philippines to do it anymore. You don't have to go and get a history degree at like University of the Philippines. You can do it and learn on your own phone in your bedroom. And how powerful is that? In reading this book, we do learn about this loss of culture and language and values through separation. But we also witness the strength of family bonds when it comes to specific Filipino-Canadian immigration experience. What did you hope that, that, that readers would take away from uh, after reading Reuniting with Strangers? So there are two things. One is I really wanted Filipinos to feel represented in this. I am writing it for them. And the other side of it is I wanted non-Filipinos to feel a lot of empathy for this community. I feel like I felt like it was my responsibility to kind of hold this door open and show you this is what's in our text messages. This is what our emails look like. This is what it looks like on Saturdays when we're not with you. This is what it looks like back home in the Philippines. I really wanted people to get that deep dive into the culture in a way that they haven't seen before. Generally, congratulations on this book. Thank you so much. Generally, Austria Bonifacio is the author of Reuniting with Strangers. She was in Toronto. And that is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. And my thanks this week to Emily Chiarvesio, Olivia Pasquarelli, Sarah Cooper, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, I'll speak with another Canada Reads contender. Christina Wong will be here to talk about her book, Denison Avenue. And she and I will be joined by former Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi, who will defend Denison Avenue in the Canada Reads debates in March. And Ryan B. Patrick will bring us an interview with Halifax writer Charlene Carr about her new book, We Ripped the World Apart, a story of motherhood, race, and secrets. I'm Ali Hassan. Thank you for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.